God, what a wonderful morning of uh, singing songs, hearing a beautiful testimony this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in Panama today. There are a number of folks in this room who, when they think of Panama, they don't just think of a place, they think of people they have interacted with, they think of names and faces and children and sounds and smells and all things come to mind. God, for what you're doing right here in this room, in this place, we give you thanks. And for what you're doing all around the world today, you're doing things we'll never hear of. We thank you for being a God who was so active and so involved. Uh, And God, I I need you today. I, I ask for you to pour forth your Holy Spirit upon me, that I may speak words that may be helpful and hopeful, not confusing. Uh, That Jesus may be lifted up as the center of it all. And ultimately, that Christ may be formed in our hearts through the words of my preaching. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Miriam, thank you so much for uh, what you had to share. There were a few lines you had uh, that just had my heart racing. That whole line you said about once you hear from God, you cannot unhear. Um, was so good. Thank you. Thank you for a work in Panama. How many of you in here have been to Panama? Just a show of hands. I know we've had a number of folks, so for those of you who may be interested in what's going on, any hand that came up, they can probably tell you numerous stories of what God is doing in and through Panama. So as uh, has already been mentioned a couple of times, uh, this is October. Every October in this church, we uh, begin moving towards what we call a 316 offering. Uh, 316 comes from John 316, for God so loved the world. Uh, and uh, this month I'm doing a sermon series called Global God. Thanks, Justin Ardry, who uh, is a minister here at the ch- this church, who forms these images for us to capture your imagination and to, to help point to something um, just that God is doing. So uh, I want to start out this morning, and I, and I don't want to be confusing. I, I, every time I step up here, I, be, I want it to be helpful. I want it to be hopeful And I want to talk just for a few minutes about how our God is global, but how our God is also local. Uh, And I feel like I talk a lot about how God is local. Because one thing I really appreciate God, about God, is that in His his bigness, as as great as God is, how awesome God is, and all of His splendor, what what we learn through Jesus, who is the hero of our entire story, what we learn through Jesus is that God is not just big, God is willing to get small. Uh, the way some people have said it is God is willing to stoop low in order to connect with people. God is relational. God is intimate. God can be private. God can connect with you on an individual level. And this is so meaningful for, for a lot of us. I, I, I sit with people regularly who sometimes struggle with this whole idea of God is so big and God's doing things all over the world. Why would God care about this little issue in my life? And what I, what I often have to try to convince people of is as big as God is, God can be doing things all over the world, yet be fully present right where you are. God can be big. God can be small. For God to enter into the small things in your life that you may be concerned about doesn't mean God has to take time or energy away from what he's doing in some other place. God is not limited by that. You don't have to worry this morning about God being fully present right here with with where we are because God can be global and big and all of his splendor and God can be so small. Now the danger is when we begin thinking that God is so small and personal and relational and intimate that we forget how big God is. Um, So my boys have uh, gotten into rock climbing recently. They're nine and seven, but they love these adventures. 
Uh, and uh, we've been in a couple of places that have had these 35, maybe 40-foot rock walls, and they wanted to jump in and see how they can climb. A lot of this comes from the TV show American Ninja Warrior, which they think they're going to be in one day, which they may just do that, all right? Uh, and, and so they're like, Dad, we want to rock climb. And I'm like, all right, I'll go. And they're like, but Dad, are you too old to rock climb? And I'm like, uh, what do you mean by that? I'm not that old. And they're like, well, Mom, before you do athletic stuff, Mom always tells you that you need to stretch because you pull muscles now, all right? Uh, and I was playing on the church softball team a few weeks ago. I stepped in to play a game, and I, I called Casey on the way home. I was like, baby, I'm on my way home. And the first question she asked was not, how did you do, or did y'all win, or did Sycamore View represent well? Her first question was, did you pull a muscle, all right? And I'm like, no, but why would you ask that? And she said, well, two of the last three times you've played church softball, you have pulled a muscle, all right? Uh, but my boys, they, they, get, they got into rock climbing. Now, here's the thing about rock climbing. And I've had to teach my boys this, because as they are climbing, your world has to become really focused and narrow. If you want to make it to the top, you've got to shrink your world, meaning that as you get to 10 feet or 15 feet, you don't look down. Because at 15 feet looking down, it looks like 100 feet down there. And when you rock climb, you don't look too far to the right, and you don't look too far to the left. And if someone is climbing faster than you, you can't focus too much on them. You've got to narrow your world to focus on where you are. You may look up just enough to know where you are going, but your world has to shrink. And sometimes God wants our world to be more focused and more narrow so that we can see what is in front of us. And some of you can think today your world needs to shrink because there's something you need to get done and you're so distracted from doing the task that you know you need to do. There's a bill that needs to be paid. There's an errand you have to run and you can't allow other things to pull you away from whatever it is you've got to do. I I stand up here a lot and I talk to us. I preach about the need to be fully present that sometimes we get so distracted in the world that we're not fully present with God. We're not fully present with a neighbor, with someone in front of us. And in life, there are times where you need to be focused and God needs to shrink your worldview so you can see what's in front of you and love it. But if our worldview only is narrow and focused, we miss out on so much of the picture of God's nature. Am I being confusing this morning? I hope this is helpful. I hope this is uh, hopeful for you. There, there are times we need to focus, and there's times we need God to pull us above the water to see what God is doing all over the world. Because it's in getting this bigger view of God that we see both how God is inviting us to pour into the world, like a 316 offering, but we also see how this bigger view of God begins to form and shape our hearts and make us fall more and more in love with who our God is. I remember a few years ago, I told you the story about a a polar bear in Colorado at a zoo, and they had to put that polar bear in this uh, temporary exhibit because they were building this whole new world for the polar bear. And in that little exhibit, it was a small space where that polar bear had to live for months And it was just enough room for that polar bear to take three steps and turn around. And take three steps and turn around. And they built this whole new world for this polar bear with toys and and water it could splash in. And when they set the polar bear free, do you know what the polar bear did? Walked three steps and turned around. And three steps... And then would turn around because he had been so, it had been his world. It had become his worldview that he knew nothing else. And in life, when 
You've been taught for years that you three-step and turn around, and then 50 years later, somebody takes four steps and turn around. It throws us off, right? And it's so easy theologically. It's so easy with church experience. It's easy with religion. It's easy with politics for your worldview to become so small where it's this three-step turnaround worldview, and the moment God begins to set you free or try to expand your horizon, sometimes we don't know what to do with it. So there are phrases people have used before, like, you know you've made God in your image when God hates all the same people you do. Or you know it's a challenge, or that uh, one of the challenges in life is that if we're not careful, we begin trying to form God in our image instead of being informed in the hits. So John 3.16 is the most, probably the most quoted verse in all the Bible, right? People who aren't even Christians know John 3.16. We see billboards and banners, and you got... People like Tim Tebow, who had eye black and would have 316 under it. Which, when he started to do that, John 316 became the most searched uh, thing on Google that night when Tim Tebow did that. So you had people who didn't know what it was, who were now discovering what it was. And John 316, for God so loved. And I think it's good sometimes for you to take a verse like that and to personalize it. Make it really individual. Make it... Like, understand, because I want people to know how much God loves you. It's okay for you sometimes to say, for God so loved Kip, for God so loved Josh, for God so loved Randy and Wayne, and for God so loved you, and for you to understand the kind of love God has for you. But the verse that we quote more than any other verse in all the Bible that we learn from a young kid is not about how much God loves a person. It is for God so loved the world that he gave his son to die for the world. So let me take you on a journey real quick. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, all right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 goes like this. In the beginning, God created the world, and the earth was, and depending what version you use, the earth was a formless void. In some of your versions, it is there was just this, like, piece of chaos. There was this nothingness. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The very first call of God in all the Bible, in the history of the world as we know it, the very first thing God called was he called into that emptiness, that void that was there. God called into it and God spoke light into darkness. The very first calling of God was God creating out of nothingness. And the way the call of God works throughout Scripture is God calls and whatever he calls is to obey. There's this command and execution. So the very first thing God does in Scripture, and I think this is important for us, not just as a history lesson, but because what God did in His first call is something God continues to do in your life and in the world. God continues to call out of nothingness, out of emptiness, out of chaos, out of what seems to be not. God brings something in the life out of that. The first call of God was creating out of nothingness, this command and this execution. There was darkness, and God spoke light. And when God created the world and set up the world and began spinning the world as we know it, the very last thing God said about all that was, it is good. God loves the world that he set into motion. But you don't have to go very far in Scripture before you see human beings making a mess out of the world God created, right? In fact, if you go to that next slide, Genesis 3, you have the fall of man. We have Adam and Eve who begin stepping outside the boundaries God set up to protect the goodness of life. Genesis 4, you got Cain and Abel who get in this fight and you got your first murder in Scripture. Genesis 6 through 9 is about the flood. 
And, and a lot of times we miss the thing that really upset the heart of God and the, all that. It wasn't just the rebellion of humanity that led God to purify the world in this way. It was the violence of the world that caused God to get so upset. It was very specific, the sin that irritated the heart of God. Genesis 11, you have Babel. And sometimes we read some of these stories and we may be like, what does that mean for me? Like, what do I get from that? And let me show you something. Because the first call of God was God creating out of nothingness in Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. The second call of God in the scripture is in Genesis chapter 12. And right before that, what you have in chapter 11, verse 27 through 29, look in Genesis, here's what it says. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot while his father Terah was still alive. Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscot. You all got that? This may be a test on whether you get into heaven one day or not, all right? Do you get that little family line, how it flowed? Because you may get lost in all those details, but then there's this one verse that sometimes we miss the power of it. And it's it's the very next one. In verse 30, here's what it says. Now, Sarai was childless. Some of your versions say barren. Because she was not able to conceive. You got this case of barrenness. And there are no reflections on that. Like, it's not a footnote. Like, here is why she was barren. Because God had closed her womb. Or you don't read about a curse. Or, like, this was some disobedience in her life. So this is what, this was the consequence of that. You, you don't have any reflection on it. It was just, she was barren. And you don't have to read much of Scripture to see that when a woman was barren, it was often, it was awful for her. Culture would look down on her. They thought that either she sinned or something was wrong with her, something was wrong with her family, that God was, God was against them. Um, and anytime you see barrenness show up in Scripture, red flags should be going off. And it's one of the things I struggle with with Scripture is that uh, I wish there was a story of barrenness in Scripture that ended in barrenness. Because every story in Scripture you have of barrenness ends with the child. Uh, And the only exception would be David's wife, Michael. And it doesn't say God closed up her womb and wouldn't let her have another baby. I just don't think it ever happened again between David and Michael because David had a lot of women in his life, all right? Uh, You like the way I said that's for all the kids in the room to not really know? (laughs) Um, Sarah was, she's childless, she's barren which meant her family had nowhere to go. And the second call of God comes to barrenness. The first call of God was out of chaos, and he created the world. The second call of God is that people have gone crazy, and now God is focusing in on a family. And his second call is to this family, to this community, to be a blessing to the world. And here's how it goes in Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1, that the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The emphasis on that last verse was for me. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And notice just in those verses you see on the screen, those first three verses, or maybe you're looking at the Bible in front of you, how active God says he's going to be. I will make you into a great nation. 
I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. God is saying, hey, I'm, I'm fully involved in this. The second call of God, the second calling of God in Scripture is he's taking this, this family, he's raising up this community to be a blessing to the entire world. First call was to create the world. Second call was to create a community for the sake of the world. And when God called Abram in Genesis 12, the very first word of that is go. Which you hear this in the Great Commission too, right? Which I want to get to in just a moment. The first thing to Abram is, I want you to go. The second call of God is an invitation to dangerous departure. His call to Abram and to Abram's family is uh, that sometimes you don't stay in safety. You don't remain barren, which when you see barrenness in Scripture, it stands for hopelessness. For here it is, God's asking people to leave and to take a risk for the sake of the world. I've discovered in my own life, a lot of times when I'm counseling people, I hear stories of all forms of recovery. Most of the time in your life, the hardest step for you to take is the first step from darkness to light, the first step into freedom, the first step into healing, the first step into some form of recovery. It can be the most difficult step you ever take. Even when we're in a church like this, and I've been in worship settings where a prayer time's created. I've been in some of these when I'm not, I'm not preaching. I'm just there, and there's some prayer time. The, very, the hardest step for me is to make a move to confession, to healing, to, to someone that, that can pray over me. The first step, this past Thursday, I was, uh, I was out in public, and I, I ran into this, this young woman, somewhat of an acquaintance of mine, and we struck up this conversation, and in the conversation, it, it, it began getting below the surface. I mean, I, I just started asking questions about how her life was and, and what was bringing her joy and what was bringing her pain. And she began talking about how uh, fragile her relationship with her mother has been for years and how it's leading her to this point in her life where she just lays awake at night sometimes because she is so full of anger and rage at how her mother raised her and how her mother neglected her and didn't, didn't nurture her and love her, and she just finds herself at night now as almost a 30-year-old woman just lying awake so mad at her mom. And it led to me finally asking, what's your step? Like, what's your step going to be? Because you can continue to sit, and you, can, and you may have every right to be angry, but what's your first step going to be? What's your next step to finding a way for you to live in joy and in love and in peace? A few weeks ago, we had a woman uh, who just showed up here at the church on a Wednesday afternoon. At the age of 13, her parents went through a divorce. It sent her into this spiral of making some decisions in her life for a while that just didn't really honor God. And then she started feeling this stirring in her life over the last few months. So she began trying to go to a church, but the church she went to didn't really want to have anything to do with her because of some of the, of the decisions she had made in her life. And then she started coming to Sycamore View and began feeling and experiencing the power of God here. And she was, on a Wednesday afternoon, she was at Subway and entered into a conversation with someone, and that person began steering her to faith. And this woman uh, said, well, I just, I've never made a decision for Jesus. There's some things holding me back. And 
The woman at Subway just said, what are you waiting for? Like, what's your next step going to be? Your next step needs to be for Jesus. So she came here at 2 o'clock and just showed up at the office and was like, hey, can I meet with Josh? I just I decided I want to be baptized today. I just left Subway, was driving down the road, saw the church, thought someone may be here. Will somebody baptize me so that I can enter into this life with Jesus? And I went into preacher mode because I've had people show up sometimes who are like, I want to be baptized. I'm like, well, let me ask you a few questions and make sure you're ready, all right? And I started asking questions, and this woman just had not just all the answers, she had the heart. So as a staff and a few of us just came back here, the screen was down, and we all went back there, and all a dude has to do to baptize someone, or whoever baptizes, all you have to do is you just have to put on the little waders like you're going fishing, you know? Ours leak, so be careful with those back there, all right? But, and this woman was dressed and ready to dive in the water before I could get the, the waders on. And on a Wednesday afternoon, encountered someone at a subway who said, what are you waiting for? It's time for you to dive in with Jesus. What's your next step going to be? And do you realize that whenever in Scripture God speaks the go into someone's life, it is not just for the benefit of them, it's for the benefit of others. It's for the benefit of the world. God tells Abraham to go. And there's dangerous departure. And I think three of the most powerful words in all of Scripture in chapter chapter 12, verse 4, when it says, so Abram went. He didn't sit around asking a lot of questions of God. It was God said, hey, I need you to go. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless other nations through you. And so Abram went. Walter Brueggemann says, believing the promise without any visible evidence is what is meant by faith. And if you fast forward just a few chapters, and and it's my fault on the screen, has chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. In chapter 17, verse 4 and 5, it says, as for me, this is my covenant with you. And God speaks this over Abraham. He says, you will be the father of many nations, and no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And I think one day Abraham's going to look at God and get, Abraham's going to say, hey, can I kick one person in their shin in heaven? Whoever wrote that song called Father Abraham, just give me one kick, all right? Because I can't... <laughs> anyway. In chapter 17, 4 and 5 is the promise that you're going to be the father of many nations. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Isn't that great? What I'm going to try to do over the next few weeks in this series called Global God, some of the things is I want you to see how often throughout Scripture, Scripture talks about nations, not just a nation. The word nations, the plural, is used almost four times more in Scripture than the singular nation. That throughout Scripture, what you learn is that the progression of God that began way back in Genesis wasn't just for God to bless a nation, it was for God to bless the nations. And I want to believe that as Americans sitting in a room, that God can lead us to a point where we believe that God loves America without having to believe that God only loves America. That it's not just that God only loves us, it's that God lives and exists for the sake of the whole world, to save the whole world. So 
I want you to write this down. Some of your life groups will talk about this later on. I'm going to build on this in the next few weeks. I think one of the fundamental questions, I'm not going to say the fundamental question because that could be debated. One of the fundamental questions in the Christian faith is this. Is God for people? Or is God not for people? And I think this is one of the fundamental questions of the Christian faith because it's so easy for us to answer that with yes, but do you understand what that yes calls you to? Do we understand what that yes calls the church to? That if God is for people, is there anywhere God doesn't want to go, doesn't want to send his people? God is for the world. God is eager to save the world. So in Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, what God says is, what Jesus says to his followers, are you go into the world and you make disciples of all nations. It's not just that you make converts. You make disciples of all nations, or in the Greek, it's actually you make nations into disciples. But you go. The call of Jesus isn't to, hey, invest in more billboards and signs so you can invite everybody to come into your church building. The call of Jesus is the church goes. Dangerous risk, dangerous departure. You go for the sake of the world. Uh, So... Dan Butler and I have struck up a good friendship over the last year. Dan, uh, Dan and Pam just celebrated 45 years of marriage recently. Dan is, uh, works at FedEx. Dan invited me to lunch, and I went. I've got to meet some of Dan's coworkers. Dan's an engineer at FedEx, and they just built this new facility. It's where there are a lot of the freezers and took me on a great tour. So the way Dan explained it to me is if you want to send chocolate to Marc Gasol's family over in Spain, all right, what you would do is you would go through this facility where it would keep everything cold. There's, it, it's, it's amazing. Uh, and as he took me on this tour, they took me to this garage door, and Dan's partner over at FedEx says, I want you to stand in front of that garage door. And I was like, man, you dudes are playing a trick on me, man. Y'all are like taking advantage of this guy that doesn't know how it works. So I'm just supposed to stare at a door. And they were like, yeah, I want you to go and just stand at that door. So I was like waiting for something to pop up or like the ground's going to open up. And I went and I stood. And then the, slowly this garage door began to open. And then pictures don't do justice. But if you go to the next picture, what happened was it opened, uh, the door opened. And there was this whole big world of what happens back there at FedEx. The, the noise, the sound, the, the sight, planes upon planes. And maybe you pass this like on the way to the airport, but being right there where I was in this space where boxes were being moved and there were smaller rooms and then this door opened and, and I could see this whole world of what happened. And I'm hoping over the next few weeks that God will do something like that to you. That is narrow as we can often be because of the things we're focusing on in our lives, that God will open up the door in your life for you to see how big and how great God is in all of his splendor and all of his wonder. And he does this so that we can enter into what God's doing all over the world. So I want to ask our shepherds, if you will, will you go to places this morning? We have prayer leaders because some of you today... What you need is you need that next step. You, maybe you need a first step, a first step for healing, for reconciliation, for forgiveness, whatever it may be. And we offer a prayer time in which we're going to sing a song today that just try to open up our sight, our vision, our minds to the greatness of our God. 
And as we sing this song, you can see where some people are moving around, where we have women in place to receive women, where we have shepherds. Brian Birdwell is going to be up here to my right. If you have something you want to bring in front of this church, Brian, up here to my right is where you need to go. And for some of you who have, maybe you've never made a decision to confess Jesus as the Lord of your life, you've never been baptized into Christ, today could be a day for you to take that next step, that first step towards making this dive that will change your life forever. Can we stand together? Let's sing.